We have two readings today. Here is the first reading from Psalm chapter 22, beginning in verse 23 through verse 31. All of you who revere the Lord, praise him. All of you who are Jacob's descendants, honor him. All of you who are all Israel's offspring, stand in awe of him, because he didn't despise or detest the suffering of the one who suffered. He didn't hide his face from me. No, God listened when I cried out for help. I offered praise in the great congregation because of you. I will fulfill my promises in the presence of those who honor God. Let all those who are suffering eat and be full. Let all those who seek the Lord praise him. I pray your hearts live forever. Every part of the earth will remember and come back to the Lord. Every family among all the nations will worship you because the right to rule belongs to the Lord and he rules all the nations. Indeed, all the earth's powerful will worship him. All who are descending to the dust will kneel before him. My being also lives for him. Future descendants will serve him. Generations to come will be told about my Lord. They will proclaim God's righteousness to those not yet born, telling them what God has done. And now the second reading. This is a gospel reading from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 8, beginning verse 31 through 38. Then Jesus began to teach his disciples, saying, The human one must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and the legal experts, and be killed. And then, after three days, rise from the dead. He said this plainly, but Peter took hold of Jesus and scolding him, yeah, scolding Jesus, began to correct him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, then sternly corrected Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. After calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. All who want to save their lives will lose them, but all who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. Why would people gain the whole world but lose their lives? What will people give in exchange for their lives? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this unfaithful and sinful generation, the human one will be ashamed of that person when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. Here ends this reading. May God add blessing to the hearing and living of these words. The psalmist clearly expressed in the text we read earlier that their praise of God was rooted 
in the soul-bolstering knowledge that God listened to their desperate cries when they were suffering. Hear those words again from verse 24 in our psalm. God did not hide God's face from me. No, God listened when I cried out to God for help. God listened. God is the ultimate listener. And we all know the heartwarming, soul-stirring, life-changing transformation that occurs when people are hurting and someone listens intently and with deep compassion. Good listeners today and always mirror God's compassion to such a degree that they can hear beyond their own biases and feel the deep pain of others with their ears and truly with their hearts. Being truly heard and understood can change the trajectory of a person's entire life. Many call this empathy. But when viewed and carried out as a calling, I prefer to call it holy listening. Now onto our gospel text. Peter loved Jesus this much, I think, is clear. But as we all know from personal experience, those we love do not always listen to us, and vice versa. We don't always listen to them either. For we all know Peter's ears worked just fine. But what Jesus was telling him didn't seem to compute. Now, Peter is no villain. I want to make that clear, though he was rebuked sternly. I actually like to think of Peter as kind of an enthusiastic yet clumsy hero of sorts, which gives the rest of us hope if you know in wanting to be difference makers ourselves. But Peter seemed to have his own preconceived, firmly entrenched ideas of what Jesus should do and how this whole revolution thing they were plotting should all go down. Peter was ready to overthrow the Roman government the violent, more conventional way, you know, by storming the capital and running those corrupt politicians out of there on a rail. This was definitely not what Jesus had in mind. So it seems Peter let his own mood his own ideas, his own vision, his own anxieties, whatever the case, prevent him from truly listening to Jesus. The Jesus here presented in Mark's story is telling Peter, the authorities are closing in on me. Difficulty and death appear unavoidable. But Peter, he didn't listen, did he? Peter's reaction was to fight violence with violence. This was not and has never been the way of Jesus. Peter was not listening. It's not just Peter. The teachings of Jesus are something many of us spend an entire lifetime trying to understand we have a hard time listening very well to things that are so countercultural. That's part of it. For example, many of us have rather complicated relationships with 
Violence. What? Violence? Us? Not to mention we struggle with how to faithfully respond to the suffering of others. What? Us struggle to respond to the suffering of others? Perhaps we're scared of saying the wrong thing when someone is suffering or doing the wrong thing when someone is suffering and we witness it. We hear their cries. Most assuredly, Peter is not the only one. You need evidence that our listening skills aren't all that much better than Peter's? Look no further than how modern interpretations of verses 34 through 38 are in our lesson from Mark in today's Christian culture. These verses, instead of being received by many modern listeners as a call to lead a nonviolent revolution, which is what they were given as, and usher in the beloved community, which was the point, instead many take these verses to, uh, I guess, use them against people that are suffering, ironically enough. Let me be very clear. There is nothing redemptive about violence and the suffering it causes. Many misled Christians through the centuries have used these verses to imply that somehow suffering, actual, miserable, in some cases life-threatening suffering, is somehow redemptive or good. Single mothers, yeah, you... Believe this is not me saying this. This is me maybe exaggerating to prove a point. Single mothers, take up your cross. It's what you've been dealt. You know, by giving, getting abandoned. And consider it a high and holy calling to suffer through and tough it out. Or black people, you know, again, this is not me saying it. I'm proving a point here. It, it makes me a little green around the gills to even say this. Black people, you, you want to really make your point about racism? Just choose a better time and a better way to protest, preferably one that doesn't make me feel uncomfortable or interfere with my football time. Are those who have suffered physical, sexual, emotional, or other types of abuse, or, or to those who have lost a loved one, hey, take comfort in your suffering. God had a plan. After all, if you suffer now, you'll be rewarded later. Or another putrid misinterpretation. Hey, that last verse, whoever is ashamed of me, God will be ashamed of you. And by ashamed of me, we think Jesus meant sometimes, well, not we, but some of us. I not only mean the ones who are ashamed of me who don't say amen and share that overtly pseudo-pious Facebook post to prove their faithfulness and love for me, but also those who are ashamed of me because they don't hold hands at the dinner table and pray at the restaurant to prove their faithfulness before God and everyone in public. And while we're at it, let's include those who are ashamed of me because they're not out trying to convert people of other religions or no religion to Christianity. If you're ashamed of me, like all those ways, then God will be ashamed of you, we think somehow Jesus said, when it's time to decide who gets to enjoy the afterlife, either in heaven or that hot place. I feel dirty even just 
kind of messing around saying those terrible abuses of these verses. And yeah, I exaggerated to prove a point. These teachings, though, were never given in order to tell those who are suffering to tough it out or that somehow suffering can be good and, and should be, you know, they should deal with it so they can be rewarded later. Not at all. Friends, this was Jesus' recruiting pitch or perhaps pep talk for those who would join in his movement to non-violently resist the evil empire of the Roman government, along with the corrupt religious elite. Those who not only did not listen to the cries of those who were suffering, but in many cases actually took advantage of the suffering of the marginalized and lived in benefit of the whole system. Jesus was giving fair warning, not to anyone who was suffering, but to any who would seek to join his movement to alleviate the suffering, oppression, and injustice, that in fighting this nonviolent good fight with him, they would likely experience some level of suffering themselves. It was an honest invitation to discipleship. It was a call to listen to those crying for help and to respond. Peter did not listen and, in fact, assumed that Jesus was going to challenge the status quo and the powers that be through conventional means of violence before the authorities closed in on him. But in dying on the cross, ironically enough, Jesus actually breaks the cycles of violence and refuses to participate in the evil myth of redemptive violence. The idea that one would not strike back is so radical that the disciples, not just Peter, could not wrap their minds around it. Later, the church could not wrap their minds around it either, and the church, capital C, ends up using the cross to perpetuate this myth of blood atonement theology instead of declaring, as Jesus tried to teach the disciples, that violence is never redemptive. I said three big words, blood atonement theology. What is that, some of you are wondering? Blood atonement theology is the notion that Jesus died for us or perhaps instead of us, or else in my place. Now, this was a view that was not present at all in the Christian movement until around 1,000 years after the time of Jesus, when a guy named Anselm injected it into the theological veins of Christianity. Many rightly rejected this notion, but many accepted these ideas of blood atonement theology, and in fact it has become so entrenched in certain brands and flavors of Christianity today that many mistake it for the gospel itself. Over and against 1,000 years of Christian wisdom that said otherwise, that underscored what Jesus taught, that all violence is wrong, and all violence is always wrong bad. As I said earlier, we Christians have a very complicated relationship with violence. 
If the crucifixion, a violent, murderous act, was pre-sanctioned by God so that we can all be spared of certain death and damnation ourselves, what would that say about God? A God who would require such a thing, what would that say about them? Like Peter, we have not listened to Jesus either if we interpret this passage as though it was God who had predetermined these events, ultimately culminating in Jesus' death. Jesus was predicting this turn of events because he knew all too well how Rome reacted to those who challenged their authority. What if Jesus... Okay, are you ready? What if Jesus did not die for the sins of humanity, but rather because of the sins of humanity? Do you see the difference? Does that rub up against the comfort zone of our beliefs? Much of Christianity operates under the assumption that the entire goal and sum of our faith is to believe the right stuff in order to avoid damnation and secure an eternity for oneself that is forever bliss somewhere just beyond the sky. You want to know what the premise of that approach and blood atonement theory have in common at their core? Violence. Something Jesus rejected. We have the wisdom of 2,000 years of hindsight. We should know better. But still so often, do we hear the call to listen to the suffering of the world and then to respond in nonviolent but passionate resistance? Sometimes it's hard. Instead, we get caught up in our perverted attraction to this evil myth that somehow violence and suffering can be redemptive. We must rid ourselves of the notion that violence is of God in any form or fashion, or is somehow redemptive, or can be good. We must also rid ourselves of the idea that we can solve the world's problems through violence. Violence only leads us further down the road of nuclear weapons domestic abuse, and school shootings. Violence only leads to more violent crimes as we return one person's violence with the violence of an entire state, with state-sponsored executions. The more we give in to violence, the more we accept it as unavoidable. The more often we rationalize violence away, the more often we will see events happen in our society like January 6th when those who did not get their way chose violence over peace in expressing their views. We are so accustomed to violence that the truth is we do not always recognize it even when we see it. Violence seems so natural when it calls to us, it seems so normal and even logical and reasonable. But the call of Jesus to his disciples and to those who would follow him today is to listen to the ones suffering, to stand in the gap, to order a world in such a way that violence has no place in it any longer, and to respond courageously in nonviolent ways.
And when we respond to the call of Jesus to really listen and then respond, I think it gives us a path to break that never-ending cycle of violence, not only in our own lives, but in our public lives, our public discourse, and in the ways we relate to those we find ourselves standing, for example, on the opposite side of the aisle from. Now, lest you think when I talk about violence that I'm calling out grown-ups who have fistfights in bars or in the Walmart parking lot or something else so base. All that should be a big, duh, yeah, that's wrong. But let me give an example that probably hits a lot closer to home for most of us and the ways that we participate in the cycle of violence. One plague that has infected even progressive Christian circles is that many of us struggle when it comes to finding a balance between a holy anger over here at injustice and an unholy rage. There is a place for anger at injustice, but if carried too far, it can consume us. Christians are right to despise the injustices in the world that cause human suffering and oppression. But Christians are wrong when we find ourselves spending the majority of our energies pouring them into the hatred of the injustices to the point where no one can tell that we are also loving the actual human beings who are doing the suffering because of the injustices. Did you catch that? When we hate the injustice more than we love the one who is suffering because of the injustice, we are actually participating in the cycle of violence because we are fueling this cycle with our excessive negative emotion and energies. Think about it. So how do we balance it? I think when we get it right, we don't just slam, for example, the bigots for discriminating against our LGBTQ siblings and friends, but we also show up to the PFLAG picnic. PFLAG, for those that don't know, stands for Parents, Friends, and Families of Lesbians and Gay Human Beings. And we show up to the picnic, and we put our arms around the ones who are being harmed and hurt by the bigotry. We show our love for our LGBTQ friends and neighbors by marching in the local pride parade. We show our love louder than our hate of the injustice in the first place by wearing rainbows and glitter to church on Pride Sunday. When we get it right... We love louder than we hate the injustice. When we get it right, we don't just criticize or confront our racist co-worker or racist uncle. Everybody's got one of those, I think, where I'm from. When they say something insensitive or hateful, we don't just criticize or confront, but we do something positive about the problems that we see when we hear the cries for help 
We also donate to black-led organizations that lead the work for equality. We also show up when it's time to march. When we get it right, we don't just write letters, negative ones, to our politicians who support policies that contribute to the suffering of the marginalized among us. Oh, we should do that. We also go one step further and do something positive. We also make sure that we ourselves are engaged in some way, be it physically or monetarily, whatever we're best at, in supporting organizations that combat poverty and homelessness. Are we even listening at all? Or are we so caught up in the cycle of violence, so busy expressing hate of the injustices, that we ironically cannot hear the cries of the actual human beings who are suffering and make sure they know that we love them louder than we hate the injustice that caused their suffering. If we're not listening to the actual cries for help of human beings, how will we know who's hurting? If we're not listening, aren't we just making more noise? How will we know who needs our help? Again and again, we are called to listen. Thanks be to God for this holy calling. May God help us live it out even more faithfully in the days to come. Amen.